Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, as we do a Bible study this morning, continue. We'll wrap up this book of Philippians this morning, this evening, and I hope that you join us. Did I miss something? Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. We're uh, in a series on the idea of the holidays that we talked about is the happy holidays and the idea of being able to have a rejoicing time. And like a follow-up in Philippians chapter 4 with a passage that's dealing with things that are wearing out. Oh, we've got them all over the place. In fact, Christmas has been two weeks long. I suppose some of those toys you gave have already worn out. It happens with our furniture. It happens with our animals. It happens with clothes, cars, houses. You know, the worst thing that's happening with our bodies right now. Some of us were talking last evening that all the, you know, we were comparing dates and times and it was just a few years ago you know, that we were, we were so young and full of vigor. Now we're, we're like those old people that talk about their aches and their pains and their aches and real dawned on us, we're some of those old people now. And our bodies are wearing out. Everything seems to wear out in time. In fact, it also sometimes the worst things that wear out are some relationships. You know, some people's relationship with their spouses or with their kids or other family members. There's an author who wrote about a situation that he said he started feeling that wearing out happening. John Banner tells about the time they were married just a couple of years. They got a house just before the holidays and they were going to, he was a fixer-upper they were going to be working on. And so a few days after Christmas, he's working on one of those projects. He's up in the attic working on the wiring. And he said when he crawled up in that, one of those folding down ladders, he got up there and he cut himself and he, you know, scratched himself here, scratched himself, got some of that insulation in and was feeling miserable. And as he was doing the wires, he shocked himself himself once or twice and then he said he moved over a little bit to deal with something and then when he moved over he missed the rafters and went right through the ceiling all the way down to the floor he said oh now he was in such aches and so many pains he said I got myself up and I started hobbling towards the kitchen he said my wife who is a nurse was always so compassionate and so sympathetic and coddled him for every bump and bruise ever since they were dating. And she's been doing this this past year, but he gets to the kitchen and he's looking miserable and really the doggy puppy dog eyes at her. She turns and her jaw drops. She looks at him and she says, don't tell me those are the new pants I just bought you for Christmas. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that the way it goes at times? He said, we realized at that moment after we talked about that, even in the relationship, after a couple years, they needed to sit down and do a little bit of oiling, a little bit of maintenance work on their relationship to make sure that they keep things fresh and they keep things that are, that are lively and, and fluent and, and compassionate towards one another. And his observation is true that there's many things in our lives, the important things that they need maintenance work sometimes, not just our vehicles and our homes, but relationships fellowships, the, the times that we need to do a little bit of, okay, let's fine-tune and let's re-oil and let's get things. In fact, that happens even with things we receive from the Lord. There is one of the greatest gifts that God gives us is talked about in Philippians 4. It is the peace of God that passes all understanding. He mentions it in this passage. In fact, let me read part of it. You can read it for yourself, but let me just read where we're at. Where he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. 
What he's revealing to us is a fact of life that even this area of the peace of God, at times it needs some maintenance. It needs some management. It needs some oiling. Because there are moments in our life where all of a sudden time takes away that peace in our hearts. Or worse yet, troubles. The troubles that we've prayed about, the troubles that are most, most vivid on our church family's minds, is the trouble that many are facing in a, just an inordinate amount of people that have died over the last months. I'm coming to a point where I want to say to people, do not join our church, it's dangerous. I feel that way at moments. I feel like some of those folk who are going through these trials in the deep waters, that it's like, where is this peace? When all of a sudden you, if you were standing there this week, you were asked this question, and some of you have lived this so vividly. I'm standing here, we're talking, and, and the people are experiencing a loss of a, of a spouse, loss of a parent, young, 51 years old. And the comment, our pastor, we've heard it in church all these years. There's a strength that comes from God that is unbelievable. There is going to be a peace that passes all understanding. Why don't I feel it right now? All I feel is sadness. All I feel is shock. All I feel at this moment is weak. And some of my friends, some of my, my co-workers, some of my neighbors are saying, oh, you're so strong. You're so strong and you look like you've got it all together. And the comments that I've heard frequently over the last month says, I don't feel like I've got anything together inside. I feel like my life is just gone. With the burial, I thought I buried me. Where is this peace? Where is this comfort? Where is this joy? I don't know if one said to me recently, I don't know if I can ever feel like I'll smile again. And yet God promises a peace that passes all understanding. And for some sitting here this morning, you might see, think I'm sounding like a heretic. That people should never be sorrowing and never be sad and never be confused by even the great king of terror's death. When it happens, you'll know what it's like. When it happens in your family, you'll realize that the reality of life, there are moments where you question and say, what happened to this peace? It's going to take some maintenance work on our part. In fact, what I understand from Scripture is that this peace is just a phenomenal, phenomenal gift. It comes from God. The peace of, whether it be His peace or that which He gives us, it is a supernatural peace. I understand from the passage that it says that this peace of God shall keep your hearts and minds. The word is really an interesting word when you think that Paul, who is writing this word right now, has a guard. He has a sentry posted upon him. He is garrisoned around by guards so he cannot escape because he's in jail. He says that's what the peace of God does. The peace of God will garrison, it will fortify, it will strengthen, it will surround. He says that it is beyond human description. It is beyond being able to describe. It's almost like that proverbial question that often gets asked, how do you know you're going to, that you're in love? How do you answer that? Oh, when you're, when you're in love, this happens, this happens. Right, yeah, but it happens and you'll know it when it happens. It's hard to describe. 
Well, so is the peace of God. The peace that I heard about at the end of last evening that said, I don't know how that just happened. I don't know how I was able to do that. I don't know how we were able to function. The widows have been saying for the last months, I don't know how I've been able to manage since. But there is a strengthening, a peace that I didn't know before that is helping me now. The peace of God that comes only through Jesus Christ. It does not come through reading some book or going to a program or doing some, some, some mantra of some sort. It is dealing with a relationship with Jesus Christ, a fellowship with Him. It comes from Him, not from somebody else, not through some, some institution. It is through Christ. It is dependent upon your fellowship with Him, and it penetrates every area of your life keeps the hearts, the minds. It is a peace that he says that will help you in your thought life. It will help you in your spirit. It will help you in your attitude. It is a peace that we have to, make, we have to look and say the reality of it is it can wear down. And God says, I will give this to you. But just like it is with salvation, I have it. I've planned it. It's by my power. You need to respond. You need to believe. You need to confess. You need to repent. There is some human element, minor as it is, but it's involved. So is with the peace of God. In this text, you'll even see him say at this, this passage as you follow it all the way through. He makes a comment, like in verse 9, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the peace of God shall be with you. There is some requirement for this peace of God to be activated in your heart, in your life, to keep you sane in the moment of an insane world. And the circumstances that are so, so disturbing and troubling. Apostle Paul can write about it, and he's a classic description of this peace of God because he is going through trials and troubles that are, oh, they're, they're, they're a multitude compared to what we go through. Here he is sitting in jail. Doesn't know if he'll live. Here he is, betrayed by even some of friends who have just basically abandoned him. Here he is. Those who are near to him, one of them is near death, Epaphroditus. Here he is, an individual who he has to deal with that which none of us like to do, confrontation. He has to confront false teachers that are trying to attack his friends and the church that he, that he built. Here it is, there are people within the body that he's given his life and his time and his energy towards, people causing division. That he has to go and talk to these two ladies, Yodias and Syntyche, as we read about in verses 2 and 3, that they are causing the whole body to be split apart by their personal feud. Here he is burdened where he talks about different experiences that he had just recently in 2 Corinthians where he talks about he's in famines and in distresses in shipwrecks and in the deeps often. He talks about in this passage how there's been times where he abounds but there's times when he is abased. When he knows where there's prosperity and he knows when there's necessity, where there's hunger. And he writes then and says through all of this there's a peace. There's a peace of God that passes all understanding, given by God as a great gift. But Paul says, I know that I must put myself in a spot, keep myself in this spot to have that maintenance of that peace of God, to make sure that that gift of God is operating in my heart day and night, that it is there through Mondays to Monday, that it's not just on a Sunday morning, but it's a reality of my life. And what he does in these few verses is he gives us a description 
He gives us a formula of what we need to do on the human side so that we can enjoy that peace of God. He reveals to us, and I say the term tongue-in-cheek, it's secrets, but it's not secrets. He wants to broadcast and publicly announce, here's what you and I should do so we maintain a peace and strength from God Almighty in the middle of all the chaos of this world. It's very simple. You follow through the text, and he gives us different commands. One command is be persistent. Persist. Look at verse 1, where he writes as the opening part of this chapter. He says, Therefore, my brethren, my dearly beloved, those that I long for, you are my joy, you are my crown, stand fast. Stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. There is clear he has a relationship that he is very, very concerned about these people. So concerned that he's going to embark upon this chapter and say, here is what you need. You need to stand firm. You need to stand fast. The word is a military term. Boy, that makes sense because life is a battle. It's a military term that means hold your position. Stand your ground. Do not retreat. Do not fall back. Stand firm in the Lord continuously. Keep standing. That means that you and I do not retreat in our daily walk with the Lord. We do not pull back from ministering and serving the Lord. We do not withdraw from the doctrines, the doctrines that were being attacked that we looked about in chapter 3. We do not withdraw, we do not retreat from being a servant where we are actively ministering to other people and taking the word and letting it minister to our our hearts. We do not retreat in prayer. We do not retreat in worship. We do not retreat in Christian fellowship, what we do is we determine to be stubborn and to hold fast, to stand firm on what we know is truth. We know what we're supposed to do, and we stay there. If we expect that peace of God to be operating in our hearts, we must stand in a place where God can work. We need to be stubborn. We need to not move. We need to be the proverbial mule when it comes to doctrine. Years ago, there was a preacher that was challenged in the doctrine. We're talking back in the 1700s. Circuit-riding preachers would come through the area down in the south and even through this part of Pennsylvania. They would come through and they would preach the Word of God. The two groups, more than any others, would be your Methodists and your Baptists at that time. Those who were the, uh, the independents, those who were the... Um, the term was they were, they were not the, I, I just, I'm forgetting the term right off the top of my head. They were the rebellious ones. They weren't following the normal church procedures. They would come through and they would preach the word of God. Well, one of them was preaching the word of God down in Halifax County, down in North Carolina. And as he preached the word of God, there was a woman who came. Her name is Mrs. Dawson. She came to the service and at the end of the service, she responded. She got born again. She prayed and asked Christ to be her savior. The problem was she was married to the meanest man in the county. When he found out that his wife had gotten born again, he was livid. He was angry. He was just in a tirade against it. And then, as she went to some more of these camp meetings, she came home and announced she was going to get baptized because she realized that the believer, after they get born again, should be baptized. Her husband made a public proclamation. He made it known to everybody that if somebody were to baptize my wife, I'll kill him. I'll shoot that preacher dead. Mrs. Dawson sought out the counsel of one of those circuit-riding preachers, John Tanner. She came to him and she asked him, she said, Brother Tanner, what should I do? My husband says he'll kill anybody who baptizes me. He won't kill me, but he'll kill that person. And And I think I should be baptized. The Word of God says, what do you think I should do? 
Should I just, you know, for the safety of others, should I just forget about it? He says, no. No, the Word of God says you should be baptized. It's a command in the Word of God. So we see in Acts chapter 10 that they were commanded to be baptized, to profess their faith. Profess your faith, do what is right, and watch how the Lord will work. In other words, do what the Bible says and trust the Lord. Her response was an interesting response. She said, that's fine with me, preacher. But I want to know, will you baptize me and trust the Lord for a response? He did. He did. A few days later, as he's traveling to another revival meeting, Mr. Dawson met him on the road, shot him dead. You expected a happy ending, didn't you? See, the story doesn't fit. We would expect that something phenomenal and something magical would come out of that. Because oftentimes we think our service for the Lord is dependent upon good results, happy endings. The Word of God never promises all that. Never promises that in this life. We don't know whatever happened to Mr. Dawson, if he ever got saved. We know he got hung for killing the guy. But we don't know. What I do know is there's a heroic character in this story. Two of them. A Mrs. Dawson and a Tanner who stubbornly did what God had required of them, no matter what the results would be. And they did right. They persisted. They followed what God had told them to do. God says, not only are we to persist, but he gives us a second command in this text. The second command in this text that will help us to maintain peace of God is praise. Watch what he says as we go on in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Note some things. It's a command. As a command, this is not something optional. This is not something that we can say we don't need. Years ago, my daughters, when my wife was training them that they should cook, she tried to train the boys. That was a disaster. But she tried to train the girls to do some cooking. So one of my girls was, you know, in the mood one day to make my favorite chocolate chip cookies. And no, there's no coconut in the house. They don't make those things. But chocolate chip cookies, and they're even better when there's M&Ms put in them. But uh, well, one daughter made the chocolate chip cookies. In the course of doing the chocolate chip cookies, she left out one minor ingredient. Baking soda or baking powder, I don't know which. But she left it out. In the, at that same time, I was doing a little bit of renovation up in, the, uh, up in one of the bedrooms. I tell you, those cookies were good. Whenever I couldn't find a hammer, those cookies were fabulous. I could just pound nails with them. You know, we, we couldn't eat them, but we could pound things with them. Just because she left out one simple ingredient, it made all the difference. Do you know if you leave praise out of your life, if you leave it out, you will not experience the peace of God. You will not have what God promises you if you don't get into praising. This praising is so important that he says it twice in one sentence, back to back. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. What does that imply to you? Doesn't that imply an urgency? Doesn't that imply as a parent, you know this, when you're talking to your children, if you say something back to back twice, you really expect them to do it. Listen, catch this. And so he says to them, I want you to do this over and over again. Rejoice, keep on rejoicing, keep on rejoicing. And again I say, keep on rejoicing, keep on rejoicing. And he uses, when he uses the command here, he uses the plural. That means all of you keep on rejoicing, not just the older or the younger or the newly saved. He is talking not just about the males or the females or the singles or the married. He's talking about all of us. He's not just talking about the teens, he's talking about all of us. 
This is to be a practice of our life where we are doing it. We are acting it out. James says you have to actually plan and purpose to do it by like the accountant. You count it all joy. You reckon. You tally it up. You sit there and you think it through for what do I have to be thankful for? And you take those moments, you rehearse those moments, you actually carry out those moments, not just put them off into that little box of your mind and say, I should praise. One of these days I'm going to praise. No, it is to be a regular practice in your life where you take opportunity to praise. In other words, we don't give in to the pouting. We don't give in to the discouragement. We stop and we take stock of the blessings even in the middle of the trials. Even in the middle of the difficulties, we count our blessings ton by ton. Then we actually verbally express them. We announce them. We declare them. We rejoice in the Lord always and again. That might mean we take them and express them, writing them down. It might mean that what we do is we share them with somebody else, but we count them. We share them. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like praising. I don't feel like giving God honor right now because of some disease or some disappointment or some difficulty at work. But you stop and count the blessings. You take a moment. And maybe you make it so regular in your life, you do this every week. You set aside a time of thanksgiving. Or maybe a month. But you make it a regular part of your life where you pause and you praise and you do this so as to maintain that sweetness of the peace of God. My hero has been for years one of my spiritual heroes. And not to embarrass him, but Harlan Zimmerman is a man of praise. When we went to his door early that night, knocked on the door, woke him out of dead sleep to tell him that his daughter had passed away. Harlan did not disappoint he was such an example to the rest of us. How would you respond? I would be angry. I would, I would, I would turn, pout, panic. Harlan breathed deep. He says, well, thank God she wasn't driving and somebody else wasn't injured. Thank God we had 51 years despite all of her heart problems. Thank God for this. Thank God for this. Thank God, he remember him saying, thank God she's not suffering from the pain and the difficulty and the different things. Thank God she's with Jesus, our Savior, and we're going to see her again. I'm supposed to say those things. I'm the preacher. So that's expected to, that I would give those platitudes which obviously we would do because it's biblical. But to see it engaged and in action from the Father, that to me was spiritual heroics. But that to me is what this passage calls all of us to do. And demands of us that we give praise in the middle of the panicked moments. In the middle of the pressures, we stop and we act out our Christian living the way it should be acted out. That we rise above the norm and we say, what are the blessings in the middle of my pain? What are the blessings that I can rejoice in in the middle of my agony? Because as I recount the blessings, God's peace will be very evident in my life.
Laura Clark, a writer, talked about how she received a phone call from a friend one day. And this friend who was a born-again gal who loved the Lord said, God seems so far away. I just can't seem to find God right now. You ever have those moments? Laura responds to her and basically says, here's what you need to do. You need to sit down right now and number down one, two, three, four, all the way to 50. And then you need to write down next to that, not what you should be thankful for, but what you are thankful for. And do this as not a process of just doing motions, but from your heart, what are things in your life that you are thankful for? And the gal said, okay, I'll try it. It happened about an hour later that Laura needed to call about something with their kids and transportation to get them to some game or something, that when she called her friend, her friend obviously recognized her phone number uh, on the cell phone, and instead of answering it normally, she just answered it this way, I found him. I found him. Praising is really a phenomenal tool to draw closer to God. And by the way, speaking of drawing closer to God, you do realize that when, that when there's a need to draw closer, it's not that God has moved. It's that we have shifted some way, somehow. And by getting back to a point of praising, that draws us closer to Him. Now, He's given us two commands. He said we need to persist. He says we need to praise. He gives a third command. We need to pause. He says in this text a word that I, I wouldn't catch normally unless I go to the original. For my King James, it would be confusing. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, I wouldn't catch this. Usually in my thinking, moderation would mean, okay, self-control, not drinking, you know, drinking in moderation. But that's not what the word is at all. The word is your graciousness, your friendliness, your gentleness towards others. It's talking about interpeople reactions. It is how you treat others in the middle of your problems. What he's calling for, I should repeat, what he's commanding, is that you and I make an urgent change. Right now, you do this. Right now, you Philippians, you need to all of a sudden work on being friendly towards all people that are around you. Now, what that means is this. That means that we are not to allow that anger, that frustration to take over in the middle of the pain. We are not to strike out at other people. We are not to throw things. We are not to yell. We are not to scream. We are not to attack. We are, we are not to you know, begrudge because we had an auto accident. We take it out on the kids when we get home. No. In fact, he says what we're supposed to do when we suffer something that is, has changed our schedule, changed our health, when something has gone awry in our life, what we're supposed to do is instead of reacting against other people around us, what we're supposed to do is display a spirit of grace and friendliness, compassion and kindness towards other people. That includes your family. That your family doesn't give you excuse to act in an non-Christian way. You're supposed to be gracious to them. That means as well that even in the middle of the pain and the pressure, when you feel like withdrawing and not talking to anyone, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be interacting. Even when you say, I want to be all alone, and we all need a, an alone moment. I'm, I'm not saying we should never have privacy. But it means that instead of doing what the Elijah did in the Old Testament, when he got into his depth of depression, he ran, he left his servant, he vacated, and went, went far away and wanted nobody's company. Nobody for days. And God comes. And he's even upset with God. We need to do the opposite. 
to maintain, to have, to function with that peace of God, we need to pause. We need to keep ourselves under control. We need to keep in interaction with other people. We need to show grace and gentleness towards those other folk. I'm not saying you won't have the thoughts of frustration, but they cannot take over. I'm not saying you won't feel like I need a moment alone, but it shouldn't dominate your life. I'm not saying you won't have moments of being angry with the Lord or with somebody else, but they should not turn into bitterness because you harbor them. What we're saying here is you and I need to interact and interact with grace. Now, I understand. I understand the common thought that is expressing in some of your minds right now or has been expressed verbally. That if we act like we're being friendly towards other people, when I don't feel like being friendly towards other people, I'm being a hypocrite. That is not true. That is not biblically true. Well, wait a minute. We need to be real. We need to share everything. That is not true. By you and I saying, I am going to, through the strength of the Spirit, I am going to limit what I say so as not to hurt other people. I'm going to contain expressing all of what's inside. That is not being a hypocrite. That is following a command of Scripture. You and I are not to express every emotion we feel. Now, I'm going to take a shot, and I'm not against it totally. But I think Facebook is creating a major problem here. That people think they need to say everything that comes to their mind and put it out there for the world. Of every moment, of every day, of every experience. Okay. A Christian is not allowed or permitted to express and to act on the anger and the pressures they feel inside. The depression. We are not permitted scripturally to allow the depression to take over our lives. We are not permitted to isolate ourselves from the rest of the body of Christ because we feel lonely and we want to be alone. If you do that, you're going to be violating principles of Scripture, withdrawing, and you're going to make things worse. Have you ever come to church when you felt like you didn't want to be here? Yeah. Let me rephrase this. How is it that in the spiritual realm, we think it's okay to act on emotions? You don't do that with work, do you? I don't feel like going to work today, so I'm not going to go. Well, if that's the case, how many days in your life would you go to work? I don't feel like paying bills this week, so I'm not going to pay my bills. How many would you pay? I, I, I got to tell you the truth. When I pay my bills, there's none of them that I say, oh, this is fun. <laughs> Paying taxes, would you ever pay taxes if that were the case? Would you ever, would you, if you're, if you're going to act on just your feelings, would you ever be kind to somebody? I got to tell you the honest truth. I don't want you to know what I'm thinking most of the time. <laughs> yes? There's a lot of garbage in here. I don't need to express it. I'm ashamed of it. I'm ashamed of how thoughts come into my life, how they come into my mind. I'm ashamed of how many times I feel like I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to pray. I don't want to do these things. We don't act on the feelings. We do what's right, and when we do what's right, the feelings come into line. 
Do you realize what the passage is saying? The passage is telling me that if I do what's right, I bring into submission my thoughts, my heart, my mind. If I do what's right, I will feel right in time. The peace of God will then take over. It's not that hard. But it does does go against society, doesn't it? Because doesn't society say, put it all out there? Be real. Okay, you're not being phony. You are battling through the Christian life. So what it requires of us is recognizing when he says the Lord is at hand, in that context, it is basically saying God knows what you're going through. God sees. God will help you. If it is coming from somebody else who's bringing the problems, most every time it says the Lord is at hand, it's talking about judgment. It's talking about God taking care and putting things right. God will do that. I don't have to vent. I don't have to attack. God will take care of what the problems and the pressures in his time. I need to trust. I need to persist. I need to be praising. I need to be pausing, not letting my mouth run off, my head run off into rampant directions and become unfriendly. I need to keep in control. Number four, I need to pray. I need to pray. What does he tell me to do in the text? He says very simply in the text, he says, be careful for nothing. He, he's not talking about the way some drive, okay? Careless driving. He's not talking about that. He is literally saying, stop being torn apart. That's the way the Greek word reads. Stop being pulled in, in two. Stop having the pressures of life just overwhelm you and dictate and cause you to worry so much. And by the way, this is a real problem for us, is it not? It's a real difficulty. Studies have indicated this amongst Christians who have sought. In the one, one counselor did this years ago. He put together a study through a number of different counseling, Christian counseling centers and came up with these stats. The stats that is basically concludes that the majority of born-again Christians seeking uh, therapy for some type of, of worries or difficulties, the majority that they were, they were worrying over were things that they could absolutely not control, not make any difference in their life. Here, here's what they concluded. They were, the worried peoples came in, 40% of them dealt with, they were, were all upset about things that never occurred, never even happened. They were all the what ifs this, what if that. Of those people, 12 was dealing with some things that were in the past that you could not change. It's done. It's over with. The blessing of Scripture is I forget the things which are behind and I now press towards the mark. I can't undo. There were some pressures where some 10% of the people seeking, uh, seeking professional help was they were worried and upset over growing old. What a waste of money. I mean, how are you going to prevent growing old? Of those people, 30% were worried about what other people thought about them. Or said about them. Can't control that. Sometimes, sometimes we can by what we do. But a lot of what people say. They're going to say it no matter what. Only 8% of what the people came for counseling. Was something that they could correct. Jesus kind of referred to this didn't he. In the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says the idea of do not worry. Do not be upset over a lot of things in our life. And he talks about those things that God will provide. Don't worry about it. God takes care of the birds. He takes care of the flowers. He's going to take care of your food and clothing. Okay? Should we be managing it? Yes. Should we be preparing for it? Yes. Should we be make, doing our part? Yes. But we've got to trust. We've got to trust. 
He he says, you can't even change your height. You can't even change the appearance in that regard. So he says, don't worry about it. He says that we shouldn't be worried about the things in the distant future because, quite frankly, what does he say? Sufficient is the evil that's going on today. Today, let's deal with just today and get by. So Paul writes and he says, instead of worrying, what you need to do is be given to praying. He says, be careful for nothing, but in everything pray. Literally, when am I supposed to pray? Well, pray all the time. Pray over and over and over and over and over. What am I supposed to be praying for? Well, he makes it very serious. Anything, everything. How am I supposed to pray? He gives us three words or four words. Pray. He talks about give prayer, supplication with thanksgiving. The prayer is adoration. The supplication is desperate pleas. Some of you know what this is like. In the moment of your greatest pain, boy, you are desperate. Oh, God. And it just dominates your mind. You can't, you sleep it, you eat it, you whatever that trial, whatever that difficulty, it consumes, and all you can do is just please, God, I don't even know what to pray. Help me. God, well, that's the supplication. The prayer is that worship and adoration that we come before him as servants, not as masters, telling him what he should do. The thanksgiving, you want to see, you want to see a, a, a classic example of thanksgiving? It's found in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel hears that a new law has been passed. The new law is if you pray to God, you will die. Daniel hears the new law, and what does he do? Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Phenomenal passage. When he knew the writing was signed, he went into his house. His windows were open towards Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees. Three times the day, he prayed, gave thanks. The key phrase, as he did. A four time, that means all the time. Here's a classic example. How to respond when the government, well, I shouldn't say when, if the government ever does something stupid. Now, when the government does something stupid. How do we respond? Our first reaction is to be prayer. It's not to be the internet. It's to be the upper net. It's to be prayer. Our first reaction is not run to one another. It's to run to God. And that can be done, he says, at any occasion, with thanksgiving. Keep letting these specific requests be known. Pray, pray, pray. In other words, if we put it in, in a different terminology, we would say we're commanded to actually take time. Not just talk about it. Not just let it be done here. But you are to take time to actually pray personally. To share your needs, he's inviting you to. He's saying, come to me. But when you come, we adore him. We worship him. We say, the God of who's all over all creation, the God who is so mighty and so powerful, I don't have a clue what you're doing. I don't have any idea why you're letting this happen. I feel so weak. I feel so, so slighted at this moment, but I need you. I need your help. And it's expressing from your heart that earnestness that you need him, you want him. He is able to meet your needs. You pray. You pray, you pray, you pray. And he says, the peace of God that passes all understanding will come to you into your life and into your mind and into your spirit. And he makes it very simple. That we're supposed to be persistent. We're supposed to praise. We're supposed to pause. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to ponder. This is the hard one. In the middle of the pain, what do we think about? In the middle of the night when you get a toothache, what are you thinking about? What, what dominates your thoughts? The pain. 
Okay, he says, in the middle of your life, in the middle of your difficulty, whether it be disease or death or debt or some teacher or some confrontation you need to make, what are you supposed to think on? He gives us in this passage the idea that we're to let our mind dwell on these things. Let these things come in and live there and to participate in our life. He's not saying this is something I advise, this is something I command. Yet you change and you get control by changing and bringing into captivity your minds, your thoughts through the Spirit of Christ. Because as a man thinks, this is what he becomes. This is how he is. And he gives us a whole list. The whole list that we could talk about ad infinitum about all these different positive, all these different blessed things, all these things that are beneficial and helpful that we should be dwelling upon and thinking upon. It's our blessings. It's the good things. It's in the moment of death that you talk about memories. Good memories. It's in the moment of tragedy that you reflect upon what God has done. What others have done. What has been accomplished through your life when all of a sudden at that moment you feel like life is not worth living. What are the benefits? What are the positives? What are the, the, the good things that are still there? The responsibilities you have. The challenges you have. The ministries that you have in essence. You know what I found very, very interesting in this study? Was taking my Bible... And going to Psalm 19, and I challenge you to do it later. Go to Psalm 19, and he talks about the law of the Lord is sure, perfect, converting the soul. And through Psalm 19, he lists out different characteristics, attributes, virtues of the Word of God. They almost match perfectly with true, honest, just, pure, lovely. Do you know what he's advocating here? It's not just uh, thinking upon the good things of life, but thinking upon the good word of life. Filling our mind with the word of God in the middle of pain. Oh, yeah. That's easy for you to say, Wayne. You don't know what it's like to bury a loved one. You don't know what it's like to stand there and get that phone call. You don't know what it's like. You're right, I don't. I don't, not the way you do. I'm an outsider looking in on all these cases. I'm not the insider that's feeling it the way you feel it. The way you feel like when I go to the Word of God, it seems hollow. The way when I open it up, it's not, it's not ministering and taking away the pain. I understand that. And I understand a biblical principle here. That the biblical principle is I still need the Word of God. You still need the Word of God. That that Word of God, as it saturates your mind day after day after day, even though it's so hard to read because your mind is floating all over, you discipline your mind. You keep filling 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 your mind, your mind, your mind, your mind. And as you think on these things, as you ponder, as that in time, it takes the, it takes the predominant residence of your mind and your heart the peace of God is real. The strength of God is there. The Word of God will produce fruit. You maintain a discipline and a diet of the Word of God, even in the middle of the difficulties. Because great peace have they which love thy law. You need the Word. You need the Word. I know you don't have it on your sheet, but let me conclude with the last one. Okay? It's not there in your number. Practice. He concludes this portion, and we'll pick up with it tonight and do the rest. 
But look at verse 9. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me. What's the command? Two letters. Do it. Do it. And then watch what he says. You do it and the peace of God shall be with you. You don't wait until the peace of God allows you or enacts so that now you start functioning and do what's right. No, you do what's right and let the peace come after your doing. You practice Christianity and let the God of all creation then put peace into your life. This is to be done by all of us. Continuously, the command is. And he goes on and he makes a comment here that is striking to me. Do all these things. The things that I've preached. The things that you've heard before. Paul says it to this church. If I were to rephrase it and put it into contemporary 2016, 17 words to Faith Baptist, I would say, after all the years of preaching that you've heard, after all the Sunday school lessons that I've taught, after all the different messages that I've preached, what you've heard in them, God wants you to do. The messages on family, the message on integrity, the message on praising, the message on, on being honest and being upright and being pure, all of them. Not some of them, all of them. You work at in your life taking these things and saying, I'm going to live the Christian life. The message is on witnessing. The message is upon serving and contributing to the body. The pain says, I'm not going to contribute anymore. I'm going to withdraw, and I'm going to be the spectator at the side and watch the church minister because I've got too much pain to minister. It's not what the Word says. The Word says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you're supposed to be contributing. When God deals with Elijah, who's in depression, the first thing he tells him is, you need to go and anoint Elijah. Or Elijah, or anoint Hazael to be the king, and then you get Elijah and train him. He gets them right back into ministry. Serving other people. Ministering to other people is one of the surest, best cures to get over the disappointments and depressions and the pain that you're feeling. In fact, 2 Corinthians says God allows this pain and this discomfort so that you can comfort and minister to others. It's very simple. It's very hard, but it's very simple. You say, I can't do it. Paul could. It's possible to live a life of obedience. The key is not some new novel, some Christian book, some lady or man, you know, speaker seminar. The key is doing what God wants you to be doing now. Serving. In the middle of suffering, you serve. You do what's right. There's another chapter that's all about the church having warfare. Remember this chapter? You fight, you war. You kill one another. Chapter 4. Do you know what's interesting? You read James 4. Mark it down, read it later on. Do you go through the text and watch if this isn't true? Warfare amongst the believers. No peace in the church. Here's what they're doing instead. What they're doing is they have wrong praying. You have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask amiss. What do they have there? Wrong thinking. He talks about how you are double-minded. You are not staying persistent. You are not focused. He talks about wrong living. You have friendship with the world. No wonder there's no peace in that body that James is writing to. They're violating every principle laid out by Paul in Philippians chapter 4. And he's telling them, you need the peace. You need the peace. This is one of God's greatest gifts for the born-again individual. Peace that passes all understanding. 
but it requires on your part to do some maintenance, to make sure that you are in a position where this peace can prosper you, where you are in a receiving moment, where they can, they can just... Get... We were the other day. We were traveling. We were headed for the funeral home. We pulled up to an intersection, and the light wouldn't change. It just wouldn't change. You ever have those moments where you've, you're preoccupied and the traffic isn't agreeing with you? And at that moment, I want to just forget the traffic, go through the light, do my own thing, and the rest of you just stick it in your ear. The, uh, so I'm at this light, I'm waiting, and it goes through green lights for the other way. Twice. And it's not lighting me, and it's like, well, what else is going to go wrong this day? I, I, I know I'm not supposed to think that way, but, you know, it happens. And so, you know, what else going to, and somebody turned, and so, so uh, one of the people with me said, well, you're not at the right position for the eye to catch the car, to signal you're going. So I thought that meant move forward. So I move forward. Somebody comes, and now, and I am, I'm partially out in the lane. Some lady comes through, and boy, did she wave funny at me. She's all really angry, and she's going, and she doesn't have peace of God. And what little peace I had at that moment, it was gone. I mean, I wanted to wave back, you know. You guys never do that, I know. But I wasn't in the right spot. I was too far forward. Once I backed the car up, all of a sudden the light flicked and it was onward and upward. Do you ever find yourself not moving forward emotionally? Maybe you're ahead of God. Maybe you're way behind. You're not in the right spot. Everything I've told you this morning is putting yourself in the right spot so things click and you can move forward with the peace of God. <laughs> we are so educated. We are so beyond others who don't have it all together like we do. And yet I wonder how many times others not like us who don't have all of us have better peace. My brother Kevin thinks God lives under his bed. At least that's what I heard him say one night. He was praying out loud in his dark bedroom and I stopped outside his closed door to listen. Are you there, God? Where are you? Oh, I see you. You're under the bed. I giggled softly and tiptoed to my own room. Kevin's unique perspectives are often a source of amazement. But that night, something else lingered long after the humor. I realized for the first time the very different world that Kevin lives in. Kevin is 30 years old. He's mentally disabled with the result of difficulties during labor. Apart from his six-foot-two frame, there are few ways in which he is an adult. He reasons, communicates with the capabilities of a five-year-old, and he always will. He will probably always believe that God lives under his bed, Santa Claus visits, and that airplanes stay up in the sky because angels carry them. I remember wondering if Kevin realizes he's different. Is he ever dissatisfied with his monotonous life? Up every day at dawn, off to work at the workshop for the disabled, home to walk a cocker spaniel, returning to eat his favorite macaroni and cheese for dinner, and later goes to bed. The only variation in the entire scheme are laundry days when he hovers over excitedly over the washing machine like a mother over a newborn child. But he doesn't seem dissatisfied. He lopes out to the bus every morning at 7.05, eager for the simple workday. He wrings his hands excitedly while the water boils on the stove before dinner. 
He stays up late twice a week to gather our dirty laundry for his next day's laundry chores. And on Saturdays, oh, the bliss of those Saturdays. That's the day my dad takes Kevin to the airport to have a soft, uh, soft drink. They watch the planes land, and they speculate out loud with each other on the destination of each passenger inside. That one's there. He's going to Chicago, Kevin shouts, clapping his hands. His anticipation is so great, he can hardly sleep on Friday nights. I, I don't think Kevin knows anything exists outside his world of daily rituals, weekend field trips. He doesn't know what it means to be discontent. His life is simple. He will never know the entanglements of wealth or power. He does not care what brand of clothing he wears or what kind of food he eats. He recognizes no differences in people, treating every person as an equal and as a friend. His needs have always been met. He never worries that one day they may not be met. His hands are diligent. He is never so happy as when he is working, when he unloads the dishwasher or vacuums the carpet. His heart is completely in it. He does not shrink from a job when it is begun. He does not leave a job until it is finished. When his tasks are done, he then knows how to relax. He's not obsessed with his work or the work of others. His heart is pure. He still believes everyone is telling him the truth. Promises will be kept. And when you are wrong, you apologize instead of arguing. Free from pride and unconcerned with appearances, Kevin is not afraid to cry when he is hurt, angry, or sorry. He is transparent, always sincere. And most of all, he trusts God. Kevin seems to know God, to really be friends with him in a way that is difficult for we normal people, we educated people to grasp. God is Kevin's closest companion. In my moments of doubt and frustrations with my Christianity, I envy the peace that Kevin has in his simple faith. It is then that I am most willing to admit that he has some divine knowledge that rises above my mortal questions. It is then that I realize that perhaps he is not the one with the handicap. I am. My obligations, my fears, my pride, my circumstances, my busyness, my goals, they all become disabilities when I do not submit them to Christ. Who knows if Kevin comprehends things that I will never learn. After all, he has spent his whole life in that kind of innocence, praying after dark, soaking up the goodness and love of God. And one day, when the mysteries of heaven are opened, and we are all amazed at how close God really is to our hearts, I'll probably realize that God heard the simple prayers of a boy who believed that God really did live under his bed. But Kevin, he won't be surprised at all. <laughs>